You're listening to The Tech Talk Show. Hi there, my name is Sue Nelson and uh, for the next hour we will be talking about all things tech. I'm joined by my fellow presenter Steve Griffiths. Hi Hi, Sue, hello, how are you? Oh my god, you look a bit like you're in a good jumpy old mood, what's wrong with you? Well I've had a bit of food, so yeah I'm pinging a bit now. Sounds a bit ominous. Um, We're joined by Jonathan Lodge who is CEO of City Farm Systems and Dan Ziv who is Managing Director of TouchNote. Um, before we do that, I just want to ask you a question, Steve. Do you buy bags of salad from supermarkets? Yes. Mm. Now, what sort do you buy? When I'm on an economy drive, I make my wife buy a whole iceberg lettuce because the chopped iceberg is at least three times the price. Mm-hmm. And what happens then is you buy a bag of salad. It looks really nice on the shelf, doesn't it? Let's be honest. You know, like the sweet salad one or whatever this or the, the peppery whatever. It goes in the bottom drawer of the fridge and then you pull it out a week later and shove it in the bin because that's what normally happens at my house that's because you don't like eating salad that's got nothing to do with the fact that it's a bag of salad now, it's just that you don't eat there is salad. a joke there isn't there because i race cars mm. and uh i'm as my hobby and uh my team manager says to me quite often have a salad you're too heavy to race and cars, I, race, I race all these youngsters are about 20 years old and they're literally nine stone and i haven't i have never been nine stone i don't think i was nine stone when i was nine <laughs> yeah. alone now so yeah so it's quite a thing so have, if, a salad. have you ever come first in one of your races uh no, no. i've led once right i've led a race is that because no. it was downhill and because you were heavy that gave you a bit yeah. of a following wind well <laughs> yeah no not really you, but, need, yeah. you need to eat more salad well but I, there's a lot of tech in racing you know, and mm, that's, yeah. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I do buy bags of salad yeah. um, because I use them. Um, right. But I shop nearly every day and I think that's the difference. So yeah. I don't do one, I don't do a shop once a week. I just buy what I need in the next day or two because yeah. I'm not at home often. And I think that's the difference. Um, because if I buy a big, huge lettuce, I, I don't actually use it. So that's when I find it useful. Bags of spinach are good though, aren't they? Love spinach, yeah, love spinach. Good, yeah. Anyway, you're wondering why on earth we're talking about bags of salad on a tech show. Well, that is because uh, Jonathan um, from City Farm Systems produces, you're never going to believe this, Steve, he produces sort of bags of salad, well, salad grown yeah. on roofs. On yeah, roof. now I've seen some of this. Have I have. You? I'll have be you? intrigued to see what technology sits behind that. We're going to ask Jonathan in a minute, but in our studio here, we're on the 33rd floor of Houston Town. And I'm looking at quite a few roofs. And from here, we can see loads and loads of roofs. um, Is that the plural of roof? Roofs. (laughs) uh, Yeah, I think so. Roofs. Roofs, roofs. Um, Jonathan, looking out of this window here, what what would you immediately pick and go, right, I can grow, I can have a farm on top of that type of building? Well, there are many out there, aren't there? Yeah, well, Um, in London, yeah, there's all sorts. Well, every building has to have a roof. Right. And more especially, any heavily occupied building has a need for food. And also, they are paying to dump many of the things that the rural greenhouse grower is paying to create. In terms of energy? Energy, CO2. Every heavily occupied building is paying to dump CO2. And if you don't add that to a a greenhouse environment, the, the plants just slow down. 
So, so we're, we're in this. Um, so, this building that we're in at the moment is uh, Euston Tower. This is where our um, radio station is situated. Um, it's huge. It's, it's, we're on the thirty-third floor. I think there's thirty-four floors here. Is there something? Like yeah, that? I think so. Um, every office is is occupied. We've got the lovely HMRC. We love them. Yeah. Uh, on the first twenty floors or something, um, and obviously there's a civil engineering practice, and then then there's these yep. sort of offices here that, that we're part of. We're all producing. We're all got our lights on. You know, there's heat coming or whatever, and I presume then you've got all these extraction systems and all these things that need to take it away. Um, um, so, what are you suggesting in terms of capturing all that sort of lost energy? Every building in London in the middle of the winter by lunchtime will be paying to dump heat just by the sheer amount that we ourselves produce inside the building. So, they're all dumping heat, CO2, at roof level. Yeah. So, Let's start harvesting that. And in a city, people will talk about the problems of fresh air and whether that is actually suitable for growing. Well, in fact, there was an excellent programme last week about buildings in India where they're using greenhouses to purify air. Right. So they are massively reducing their fresh air costs purely by taking the CO2 out with the plants, which then release oxygen, Mm -hmm. and rather than filter external air they can return that to the building as fresh and so what you do then in, in your your sort of so 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 i say i wanted an installation of this it's a city farm system what what, what would you do on that roof i presume it has to be flat does it i'm making an assumption ah well that's where our technology really kicks in okay my light bulb moment was being stuck behind a supermarket lorry only a few hundred yards from the store and when i finally got inside the shelves were bare and you think well actually they have a very significant need, yeah. but they haven't got a flat roof. They're right. a steel-framed warehouse-type construction. Mm-hmm. And so very quickly we thought, well, on a low-pitched roof, you're not going to be able to have a, 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 an everyday workforce up there. So we need to automate that bit. And then the technology really starts to kick in. So what do you mean by automated? So, so you would plant plants up there? No. No, okay. At floor level. Right, explain it. I really yeah, can't. I'm trying to I cannot get a picture of this at all. So you need to explain so it. Tell, tell uh, us so, about the technology. So, so yeah. I, I, I want to grow some salad. Where, where do I grow it then? I don't grow it on the roof. Well, rather than a mere shelf stacker mm-hmm. in Tesco or Sainsbury's, how about having them actually involved in the growing and become the farmer? And they can be sowing seeds and planting. Where, though, on, where would they sow those seeds? Not at, on the roof. No. At floor level. On on a floor yep. of a building, so so here we could do we could turn the thirty fourth floor, which is at the top of this 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 tower, yep. in into literally a, a farm, a, a growing area. Let's call it that instead. You call it your incubation area and yep. your starting point, and uh, then because we can't have people on the roof and we need to track what's going on, we actually need the equivalent of a lift shaft to take our produce up to the roof, right? And then we have a transfer corridor where we put all our clever bits and then spread the, the, the growing trays around the roof and bring them back to the, cor- the central corridor. The roof, so the roof isn't the floor. The, so I'm saying here we've got the 31st floor, 34th floor, and then we've got a roof on top of that. I, don't, I, I still don't understand. So, so we've, got, we've got stuff growing on the 34th floor. No, that's your propagation level. Right. So it, I it think could, that's yeah, what you're saying, it, aren't you? Well, it could be the retail space. So you could have some. No, no, selling. let's just stick to, let's just stick to one yeah, thing rather than, go, rather than go on to another thing. Otherwise, it's too confusing. So, so, so we've got, we've got, we've, we've got, we're growing, we're propagating, as you yeah. say. We're growing the, yeah. the you know, the, the sort of nursery plants on the 34th floor. Yeah. 
put them onto the lift and we track, because we cannot be on the roof, we need yep. to know what's going on. We track individual growing trays with RFID, the yep. radio frequency yep. tags, yep. and uh, that can then track where they are on the roof with our readers. And So, so you, how would the technology work? So you've got, you've got all these trays... Uh, and some have been up there 10 minutes, some have been up there three days. But what, 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 what How, you're saying, I still haven't got it, Steve, sorry, I'm a bit oh, slow it. So what right. I'm saying is what you're doing is you're propagating them and you're getting them past seed level so that they're a little no, bit... No, not necessarily. They're a little bit higher than that, and then at that point you go, right, they need to go up on the roof now because they need a bit of, I don't know, fresh air or whatever. Well, CO2, yes. heat, light. Okay, so, so they, you have floor and then they get moved up to the roof yep. because they then grow further, is that right? So we, we put them on to the equivalent of a lift shaft and okay. we yeah, yeah. track them with the RFID so we plug it into the reader yep. and two levels and we can take it. It's a hugely efficient way of growing. It is. And one of the beauties of it is that uh, using multispectral imaging with modern cameras, mm. we can actually detect what's happening to the plant. So if there's any nutrient deficiency, any pests or pathogens, which shouldn't be in there because it's enclosed, but we can actually see what's happening to the plant before the human eye can. Wow, that's amazing. So you've got to join up all those... Uh, factors all of the measurements into a system that then controls yeah. exactly how much when and and everything else that goes in into the growing cycle of that that particular That's uh, plant. So, I mean, the costs must be huge, mustn't they? Well, well a lot the setup look, costs probably. Yeah, are, that's but, what but, I mean. Yeah, but once you get cracking, because we have the transfer corridor, we don't actually need that much technology. Right. We use a small amount and use it intensively. So, actual fact, our overall costs are not that much different to uh, the commercial greenhouse out in the countryside. Well, I suppose that's when you add in things like transportation and all the other costs. Which you don't need Which in this you respect. wouldn't need, yeah. yeah. So, the ideal then would, would be to make to cite this in a supermarket, a huge supermarket, wouldn't it? So, that they're actually growing their own vegetables is that well, you, or, or salad things or whatever. Any point where there's a significant need. So, it could be a food processor, it could be a food distributor, or it could be someone like, you know, taking out the cost of distribution, now DHL are actually preparing food for British Airways at Heathrow. Wow. Because transport went through the idea of logistics and now talk of fulfilment, where the actual need is to hand over the final product. Yeah. And that's the bit right, the where the value is, yeah. where the, yeah. the, the, that's the only bit the customer's really interested in. And of course, for a supermarket or anyone like that, when you're talking of the hardest to transport, most perishable produce, there is a huge amount so of the, transport only packaging. Because at the moment, what's the shelf life for a bag of salad? I and mean, how much of that is transport and how much of that is actually sitting on the shelf ready to be sold? Is it, you know, you it's, lose it's a few days. Yeah. But of course, the interesting point of that is that there are some growers who would actually admit that it takes three days for some bagged salads to actually arrive from to the get, supermarket, yeah. uh, from the the grower to the supermarket so shelf. So you've lost three days of shelf life to just logistics yeah. in terms of pick, bag, transport to the, the point of sale. That's it. So you talked about stressing the plant. That, that it, and that's not about, as you say, slowing it down. It's about increasing growth at certain times. Is that monitored by feeding in more CO or, or heat or water? How does that actually happen? There's many aspects of that. Um, Many you plants. can add more nutrients or take them away yeah, or suppose. make it drier or make it wetter. Or, I mean, there's a whole number of things, I'm guessing. Well, strawberries in particular, if mm. you stress them, restrict their watering at the right point, they will be sweeter. They talk of the bricks content. Mm. And so you can actually improve crop quality. So rather than 
I've always said everyone else is looking at following what we call the Heathrow model, growing absolute maximum capacity and then hoping to sell it. But if you back off from that, if you look at these flexing situations and use that to improve quality, you actually offer better product. Mm. Dan, um, in technology, I mean, you've been in tech for a while and I I know you're involved with textiles, which we'll talk about later. Um, Loads and loads of industries and sectors have been completely disrupted and revolutionised because of technology, haven't they? And, And whatever. The real last mile for me is the delivery aspect. You know, so you're, you, you've got an app and, and actually that's great, isn't it? Because we all do it on our phone, you know, and things happen. That's, that, that's marvellous. But we've still got, you know, in, as far as Amazon's concerned or whatever, thousands and thousands and thousands of vehicles all trotting around to, trying to deliver stuff. The same with a car dough, you know, with bags of salad and, and all that sort of stuff. It's trying to look at technology that will start to cut out the delivery thing, which surely... It's, it's got to be a development that's worth doing. So it's so interesting, yeah. Which, in essence, is what Jonathan's doing. He's trying to say, well, how do we cut out the how do we cut out the delivery aspect and and, and work our way backwards from that? So I think that in the in the last probably decade, people have been talking about the last mile as the single yeah. biggest issue in transportation, and constantly um, new in- companies are coming out trying to solve this issue. You can see companies in the city like Stewart who are doing a magnificent job and are focused on this last mile delivery issue. I remember working with PayPal maybe six, seven years ago. Last mile delivery was always an issue back there as well. Um, I think that trying to turn that on its head, as you say, and actually grow right at the point of entry or point of delivery rather, rather than trying to solve that issue might be a really interesting and a really interesting concept. I'm just thinking about how do I... But it seems to me, Dan, that what's happening is the opposite of that at the moment. So you're getting these huge delivery transport hubs you know, like someone like Amazon, they've got like three around the country or something. They're massive, but they are enormous. And then they're travelling huge distances to deliver three books or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and we've got to start designing in terms of what Jonathan's trying to crack. We've got to start designing it the other way. OK, well, how do we cut out the delivery element? So actually we're more local, not more global. So I remember reading about this when Amazon bought Whole Foods mm-hmm. and people were trying to make sense of that deal and... Yeah. Uh, one of the strong arguments I thought was the delivery aspect and yeah. getting closer to the customers, understanding their needs from the ground up, so what they're actually going to buy in shop, and then producing through that and maybe trying to bring that into the technology. So it's actually working around the problem, in, uh, maybe in a similar way, and saying, okay, what are people going for s- to store and buying in terms of fresh produce, and then trying to um, build technology that can support that. So it's because, an interesting model. I mean, even for food delivery now, p- p- people are, you know, having takeaways delivered. I'm just thinking, oh my God, the roads are going to be more clogged than they ever were, which is not the point of technology. Um, yeah, but not if they're getting a takeaway because they're not driving... <laughs> They're not driving to pick it up. Somebody's well, driving. Well, true. true. But, what, but I'm no, saying, what I'm saying is, there's loads more. There's loads, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and what people are doing is Absolutely. shopping from their chair, yep. but then expecting it all to, 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 to be delivered. And also, it's that I want it now uh, yeah. thing. So there's no planning around combined delivery or yeah. can it be do, done in a different way? So, like Amazon Books. Yeah, I mean, that's why Kindle was invented, really, wasn't it? Yeah. To cut out the, the, yeah, the uh, logistical bit in the middle. Yeah. Um, has it worked? Well, no, most people actually still want a book not yeah. normally, don't they? Yeah. So I think that's the thing is about food, tech in food has been slow to be adopted Very slow. because it's really hard. Yeah. And actually tech in farming, I think we've seen yields being pushed through technology, but actually I don't see a lot of 
um, picking and uh, processing technology coming in. You know, we still use labour to go and actually pick the food because it's really hard to harvest strawberries automatically. Mm. I think that's that is hard, and that's yeah. something we're going to be starting to look at. Yeah. Uh, again, China is very interested in that side of it, um, but I still think the issue is that is we're looking to replace a human picker, mm. and we actually need to. Make holistically and actually change the whole process yeah which is I, what i was trying to say i think yeah, yeah you've got to grow it differently haven't you and got actually to think about the whole thing the whole, differently yeah, rather than right. rather than sort of chunk it up in each little bit okay we'll we'll grow that differently we'll do this differently then we'll deliver mm. it differently what you're doing jonathan is just is just taking the whole thing and say okay well how do we change the whole thing yeah exactly that i why have a corridor to walk and push a trolley down through the strawberry polytunnels when in actual fact a little bit of our technology could actually bring the strawberry to the picker mm. yeah and you increase capacity mm. and reduce cost and are able to so so we're talking about sal- are, are salads the easiest to start with is that why you've picked that area or was it the well, one actually we haven't all <laughs> oh, right okay so. um, usually everybody starts with literally basil and other high value products and the issue with salads is a lot of people are looking at that as the fast to grow, um, and obviously it is one of the hardest things to transport. But in actual fact, you need to look beyond that because that's their growing systems. It might be short, it might be where they see it going, but the way forward is actually to grow a wider variety and actually go look beyond. If you're growing inside and you're using these LED lighting systems, that might work for leafy salads but there's not that much money in it mm-hmm. and of course that is the joke as i mentioned earlier to to lucy that um the original micro herb that these people some of these people are growing is actually the crest for your egg and crest sandwich yeah yeah which nobody makes a profit on <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Uh, lucy's our producer here by the way in case yeah. You was. yeah yeah absolutely so yeah i mean i remember at home well we egg and crest used to you grow it. You grow it at home, didn't you, on a piece of sponge or something? Yeah, I lived in this uh, flat that was really damp, and the landlord wouldn't believe us. <laughs> you had your own cress growing. So what we did is we scattered uh, cress seeds on yeah. the carpet, and then brought him round because we we grew cress on the on the carpet just to prove how damp it was. Yeah. So, yeah. It's uh, funny, isn't it, how some of these urban farmers haven't actually really got beyond that no. level of technology. <laughs> <Yeah>. Possibly, <laughs> possibly, possibly. So how are you going to sell this to, to, the, to the supermarkets? Because it seems to me like the supermarkets are the prime contender. We've got huge, huge stores that, that, that are massive. And then they've got all these delivery issues. Yeah. Uh, isn't that your prime um, client? So well, that was my light bulb moment. Mm. But getting them to adopt it is another matter. Of course. And we've got to break them out of their silo thinking. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it is an uphill struggle. But we've had many specialists say that will have to happen at some point. So we're aiming to work at that and see if we can get forward. And is there a market for miniaturising it for the home? In effect, you know, you say we've got... It almost becomes like it could be a community grow for a a block of flats or Mm. something like that. That in itself would be a way to go forward, would it? There are some big aspects to that that we will be of interest and we need we could do with some help to actually develop that aspect of it right. because we work on a modular basis the smallest greenhouse we can install is a single module yeah which is two meters wide right so potentially for a domestic situation we could actually put something up the side of a house or yeah. something like that and for the price of a um 
a decent um, domestic greenhouse, we could do something very similar on a smaller footprint. Because community energy's really taken off, you know, and, and people have, have, you know, I, I really like that model where you've got a community that, that might not particularly, you know, be very well off. Um, and actually the, the community can get its energy by owning, you know, owning yeah. the, the, and there's quite a lot of um, social enterprise models like that. And then when it really gets established, they're even selling their energy back to the grid. So yeah. so actually that community are making money and they're getting free energy, which is a, a big expense to a lot of families. And surely that, that might be an interesting, you know, community. Yeah, model. I think there is, mm. yeah, definitely. There's some big in areas of, that, of interest around that. We would mm. like to develop that further. And yes, it can... Very well, very well work. Um, one of the beauties of it, of it is that if you automate it, you don't have to be at home every night to water your greenhouse or whatever. You, you could just be on holiday in Portugal, couldn't you? Well, exactly. Watching it grow. Let it do its stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, well, yeah. I mean, if we've got cameras on the roof, we can see you can it, see it yes, anywhere. anywhere. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, um, fascinating stuff. We're, we're going to have a little break um, for a minute, uh, and, and I've got um, some really interesting things to talk about in terms of cybersecurity there. Um, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk to um, Dan Ziv of uh, TouchNote, very, very different from what Jonathan's been talking about. So in the meantime, um, let's listen to Jane Franklin. Um, she's a, a really amazing cybersecurity expert, and uh, let's hear what she's got to say. So I'm here with Jane Franklin, and uh, Jane and I have been at the uh, Breakthrough Women event at Eastwell Manor in the middle of Kent, and we just took this opportunity to have a little chat. Jane is um, an award-winning cybersecurity entrepreneur and author and speaker and consultant, uh, all-round um, very busy person. Um, she's also one of the top 50 cybersecurity influencers in the UK. And I, I know you work in all sorts of uh, all sorts of companies and all sorts of places uh, and talk to qu- quite a lot of people. One of the key things for you, though, is the failure to attract and retain more women in cybersecurity, in your particular view, is making us all less safe. Yeah. Could you just explain that for me? Yeah, so it's really controversial. Um, so I don't think it's controversial. It makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, so so women in business are it's established, you know, through loads of reports like McKinsey and Co. that women are good for business. Um, they add more profits. Um, they work to budgets much much more compared to homogenous teams, and there's more diversity in the workplace and better problem solving. Um, for us in security, um, I'm coming to this, and I've written a book on it um, called Insecurity. I'm coming to to this from the premise of when uh, women see risk in a different way to men. So certainly, um, if you are you saying that women are less less risk taking than men, or they take different types of risks? That's a really interesting question. They just see it in a different way, and they behave differently in accordance with it. So. Um, and there's been lots of studies, you know, with regards to this. There was one that was done by a company called Culture, um, and it was done specifically for security, so cybersecurity. And they went out and they examined um, 10,000 employees across two Nordic countries, and they found that um, men actually thought that they were better, you know, at the the at looking at security, better than women, and that they were. But they also um, established that they were taking more more risks. So do they think they're better because they're like more vigilant or they, they feel they understand it better? It, it wasn't, a, it was just their perception. 
So it is very much, very much a male perception, and it's very, very common in whatever industry. This, this just happened to be in security, which is really um, relevant to obviously the work that, that I'm doing. So women don't. So women don't think that they're as good, um, you know, at, at the job that they're doing. Definitely compared to men. The reality is there's no, no difference. You know, men and women are both good at, at what they do. Um, but certainly when it comes to the controls and the reliance on, on technology, women aren't as keen to actually put in a, a tech solution. They're more keen to actually look at what's going on and maybe put in a policy or procedure and manage that. So um, there are different so, so what you're saying is that women would rather have They'd rather manage it out and have a process and, and, and try and do it in that very human way, I suppose. Is. Yeah, and then, of course, we are generalising. We, we understand yeah, we're generalising. But, you know, but men would rather have a, have a technical solution where if I tried to do something, some, something would warn me and go, you can't do that. S- certainly from that, that piece of research that was done, you know, from, with regards to the Nordic countries, that's what they, that's what they found. So it's, and, and again, just like you said, you know, we are generalising, but certainly looking at the data, you know, that particular um, data study that we have, that's what it does look, look like for me I believe in getting the right people into the industry and I'm, I'm really although I kind of am very focused on getting more women into the industry and remaining in the industry because more women actually leave the industry and come into it and right now in the UK we've got a um, around about seven or eight percent of the industry um, are are women you know so it's very 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 low. just seven or eight percent so that, that's ridiculously low I mean I, I thought you were going to say like, there's 20 percent of women you know or something like that. seven or eight percent yeah yeah, in tech, it's about, in the UK, 17, 18%. But in security, you know, for us, it's about 7, seven or 8%. Wow. And then, so what you're, what you're also suggesting, though, is that, is that means that when systems are being designed, you know, and when things are being put in place, it's, it's being done from a very male perspective. Now, you're not suggesting that from a sexist point of view. What you're saying is, if people are thinking about things in a particular way, then they're only... Um, trying to mitigate risk in that one particular way because they're not thinking about how somebody else might do it if they're female. Is, is, that, is that right? Uh, yeah, ab- absolutely. So we need more diversity of thinking, you know, definitely in our industry. We also have challenges around communication as well. So there's a big reliance on communication and that interpretation between the tech and the business, you know, what the requirements are and the understanding of it. But absolutely, it's, it's how these are being made and implemented. And the... Uh, the, the issue that we have is is being blindsided, you know. So without that diversity, you know, one of which is is gender, the other is age, the other is ethnicity, and so on. So it's I've just started by looking at women because we have data on it, and also I am a woman and I've been in the industry for for nearly twenty years. So, so what you're suggesting is we have to take this multi-dimensional approach because because otherwise we're not going to be totally secure. I mean, I guess what you're saying is because we've got data on women, you you can look at that angle first, but. If you were, if I mean, this is ridiculous, I suppose, but we're probably more prone to some woman hacker than we are to male hacker because what you're saying is the system has got probably gaping holes and if, if you're female you're probably more likely to be able to do something naughty. Absolutely. I mean, you could even argue that women are more mani- manipulative. You know, so Surely not. It, <laughs> some people might argue that, and I'm not saying that they are or that they're not. But we do think we do think differently, you know, and and that you know that comes down to how we are wired and how we have been brought up. You know, the the culture, the nurture, um, 
you know our genes as well how they how they are developing so our hormones even you know what what goes on it is a really really complicated you know um uh area to 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 look at but you know i'm leading i'm leading with with women you know for the good changes that need to be made for our industry because hackers aren't you know we're not the same as hackers you know hackers aren't limited you know everything is available to to them whereas right now we're limiting ourselves and we can't afford to limit ourselves you know with with regards to what's at stake so that's an amazing argument actually um is is that we we have to get women into the industry to protect ourselves more protect, protect all of us more um, so, so that's one thing. If you're a small business and um, or even on a personal level, I mean, obviously you're saying that, that you should have a diverse uh, w- workforce to make sure that you are secure if you're putting security measures in, you know, to, to, to cover off every angle. Um, but are there are there some simple other things that businesses um, could do, for example, just to make sure they're protected a bit more? Um, well, absolutely. So one of the first areas I always start with um, is risk. You know, so really look at your assets. So identify what your assets are um, and really understand, you know, what they are and where they are. <clears throat> um, put a value to them and really look at your exposure. You know, so what are they and uh, where are you exposed? If you don't know, then then start with a risk assessment. So, Or, or get a teenager in to muck around and see what, what damage they can do. <laughs> No. I'm half joking. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't do that. I mean, what what I what is happening in the industry right now? You do have bug bounties. So typically, larger organisations may look at bug bounties, whereby you know they are getting effectively a, a hacker um, in to actually go and find the vulnerabilities. You know, where are where are we not? Um, where we're weak. Absolutely. So in, in my industry, we still can call them hackers or we can call them penetration testers, uh, but they will come in and they will work to a particular scope and brief. So they might be looking at your infrastructure, your network, or they might be looking at the applications that, that you have and they'll be testing them and they'll be reporting on them and advising, you know, where, where you are good and where you are, where you are and not so good. Because surely that's a good idea because, because when you're in it and you're surrounded by it, it's quite difficult to be objective and not actually see things. Just simple things, actually, that you, you know that every member of staff should do. So, so would you advocate somebody, you know, coming in to sort of stress test what you're doing? Yes, ab- absolutely. Is this is not your job? You know, most companies don't have professionals in who who understand how to do this. They're not current. You know, they've got an awful lot to do, so they they just haven't got a clue. So, I would definitely, definitely recommend that you you get you engage with an expert and there are ways to to do that and find experts out there engage with an expert get them to come in and really kind of look at your whether it's your infrastructure and your applications or one or the other but and your policies yeah look at your yeah your your policies look at your policies and then look at the awareness within the company so teach your staff you know what what to look out for because we are bombarded with lots of innovative ways from those trying to steal our data or ip or deface our websites and so forth you know so there's so many creative ways uh, and very old established ways that they are looking at Brilliant. Well, that's that's really helpful advice, Jane. If somebody wants to um, get in contact with you or read your book or, or, or you know, would anywhere else that you would advise them to go just to get a bit more information about this sort of thing? Um, yeah, they can go to cybersecuritycapital.com or they can, um, I'm, I'm available on all the social media platforms. So definitely LinkedIn, um, Jane Frankland and also Twitter as well. So at Jane Frankland, they can definitely find me there and, and via the website. 
But main piece of advice is uh, make sure that your systems are, are completely, you know, sort of designed um, multidimensionally through gender to age as well. Uh, and, um, and, and if you're not sure if you're secure, come and get somebody in to stress test it. Absolutely. And one final thing is be prepared. So have a plan because we used to say it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Actually, in most cases, it's a question of it's already happening. So how are you going to face your your customers, your clients? How are you going to deal with the regulations that are coming in because you are going to be fined? Um, and yeah, so have, have your plan, know what your message is, be able to deal with the crisis. With the complete meltdown. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Jane Franklin, thank you so much for joining us. And, uh, and uh, I'm definitely going to go and have a quick look at that book. Thank you now. Thank you. Um, and that was Jane Franklin, uh, cybersecurity expert. So we're back now on the Tech Talk show. Uh, we've been speaking to uh, Jonathan about his rather amazing farm, indoor farm thing. Um, Steve admitting that he never ever eats salad. Or have okay. a salad. Or even have a salad. And um, we're now going to have a good old chat with Dan Ziv. Now, Dan is Managing Director of TouchNote. Um, he's got a really interesting background. I know you've been there since May 2016. Um, but you've also got... Uh, uh, well, I know you're on the advisory board of Feeder and you're a mentor with Techstars. So you're really involved in tech. We'll talk about you know your other thing in a minute. But, but, but the tech scene is fascinating at the moment, isn't it? Absolutely. I don't think there's been a better time, really, um, to be in the tech scene in London. In the last five years... I feel that things have really, really matured. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm British Israeli, so I grew up in Israel and in London. And seeing the differences and how Israel is such a vibrant and mature community and has been for the past two or three decades, and then seeing how London and Europe in general has caught up with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, incubators is a great example of that, accelerators, funding, and the kind of startup scene. They talk about the number of startups coming out of shortage every year. And as that grows, you can see the entire the entire. Um, industry grow. A lot of people will be surprised when you say that Israel is so far advanced. I mean, it genuinely is, isn't it? There's been some incredible technology coming out of there and it's the skills, digital skills and all sorts of other technolo- technological skills in Israel has, has you know, been right up there for, for quite a while. So over the last I think 30 or 40 years, Israel has been second only to Silicon Valley in the number yeah. of start- tech startups that have come out and the um, VC funding per capita, which is why it's generally regarded as the second biggest tech hub in the world, uh, which is why I compared it. Um, But again, I think the interesting thing about what London is doing now, and you can see this in the fintech uh, community that, uh, that's really established here, much, much more so than in Israel, for example, is that London has found areas where it can have a competitive advantage. So obviously with all of the big financing companies around town and um, consumer tech is another big one, obviously e-commerce, which is what I do. Um, London being such a vibrant and international community, it's almost the perfect bedrock for a company to start off. And if you can make it in London because of the multiculturalism, because there's so many people looking for so many things, you can probably find an avenue in the market for your for your product as well. And and London um, for me has been a, was a little bit slow, I think, to to, to sort of uh, catch on. And but but now it really really has. I, I did find a couple of years ago that there was a lot of startups doing a lot of rubbish. Actually, um, but, but in a way, that's what sort of kickstarted it. In that people were thinking, "Well, I'm just going to give it a go. I'm just going to try," exactly. and, and a real can-do attitude. 
if it fails, it fails, I'll, I'll do something else. Um, and I do think that's where the maturities come now. And I do think investors are being much more choosy, thank God, because a lot of people put a lot of money into stuff that was never going to go anywhere. Um, but, but that has changed, hasn't it? I think so. I think that's uh, part of the life cycle. Um, SEIS and EIS investments, right? The, um, the benefits that the government gave investors investing in really early stage companies mm. have produced a lot of companies that went nowhere. That's, everyone knows that. Um, I, g- I give it the, comp- uh, the comparison to Israel and Silicon Valley. It's not as if every company comes out of those markets is a successful one either. That's the kind of cyclicality that you see in these markets. And it's true that as the base grows, so do the companies that then obviously do get funding and do manage to scale up and create a, a real market for themselves. Is there a lot of garbage in the market? I think there is now as there, ever, ever, there was always a lot. But honestly, I think that's part and parcel of what makes this community a vibrant and growing one. Yeah, and I think people are learning. And, and so they're going into it, learning an awful lot, and, and then actually then going on to do some, you know, the next thing. Um, and it is really hard to be in business. And if you're going to start, you know, designing an app or write code or whatever, you are still a business, aren't you? And all the business things still apply, even if you start off on your own. And I think that's really where London um, excels. Uh, people who start companies in London, they start businesses. They don't start startups and then say, okay, I'll sell this because um, I'll be able to make ad revenue once I get a billion users. People think about revenue from day one. I think that's why the companies who do come out of the city are actually quite strong. Um, And you see also that, and this is where Techstars comes in, and there are many other accelerators as well, that manage to mentor people into thinking of these businesses as revenue-generating entities from day one, Mm. which obviously investors are happy to see, and... um, and that really grows the market. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Techstars? Because it's an in- international programme. So Techstars is one of the le- leading accelerator incubators in the world. Um, it's been running out of London for a while. It has three practices, I believe, here. One in- jointly with Barclays and the other with Virgin. And um, I have been in touch with them for the past 18 months, I believe. Essentially what we do is 12, 12 to 20 mentors um, are staffed to startups i think they choose 12 startups per cohort and then you give them weekly mentorship try to help them out and the beauty of this is that you essentially give your talent out for disposal and you say listen what do you need is it product help is it finding investors is it understanding growth is it marketing and they come to you for mentorship mentorship is really is one of the big things that are driving so, these kind so of so how projects. would a company get onto that program what's the entry uh, process a, so there's application process right I, I think thousands of companies try uh, every year to get in and unfortunately really? there's only 12 places yeah really yeah yeah and and um, there's Y Combinator, uh, 500 startups just opened the London base as well. So as you can see, the London market is growing. And with it, the biggest accelerators are looking for inter- for local talent as well. And, and the biggest area of obviously funding and revenue stream is obviously a key area for businesses. What, what else are you seeing as common mistakes within the companies that you're involved with or the people that you mentor? So uh, Uri Levine, the founder of Waze, you would have a saying on constantly, you'd say, fall in love with the problem, don't fall in love with the solution. I think if anything, what we're seeing in London right now is that people find a solution that they absolutely adore and then they try to make it work at any cost. Yeah. So they retrofit it back. I, that's what I think. So I yeah. think if anything, we need more failing and pivoting, not less of it. So people are seeing a problem, trying to fix it, yeah. failing at fixing it, and then actually focus on the problem rather than trying to find the appropriate avenue for their solution, if that makes sense. Yeah, I make mean, we sense. see so many people on the show that have pivoted, you know, 
after developing something and it, they never see it coming and then all of a sudden they're off in a different direction they're, they're in a different market or they they've taken their te- technology and applied it in a different way Absolutely. and that happens a lot as well doesn't it absolutely i can think of a few companies that have completely completely changed industries let alone sometimes you think of uh, apps that then they move from one sector to the other and then some companies move from product companies to services companies and and, and vice versa as well so. so what's really exciting you at the moment that you're either mentoring or involved with what are you seeing that you think actually that's something special um so i think there's quite a lot in food tech generally speaking um i my previous company was a food tech company called Uncover, last minute booking app for high-end restaurants. Yeah. And I'm seeing really interesting things coming out of there. We talked a little bit before in the previous session about how food tech in general and restaurants, and this is all a very traditional industry. Yeah. And in my, uh, in my experience, these traditional industries, there's an inflection point where they start adopting technology. I think we're seeing that um, in the market right now, Farm Drop, Farm Drop is a great example of sure. uh, a company who's trying to take uh, farmers and techify what they're doing and get, getting to, all the way to, to join the table. it up, yeah. Well, I mean, Dan, Sue, Dan, you could not have said a better thing well, there. You just, Thank you so you've much. You've just done some work on food uh, tech, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, so I, I, um, I, I belong to Tech London Advocates, you know, as an advocate. And uh, when I joined that, there was no food tech group. So I, I, I contacted the founder, Rush Shaw, and said, there's no food tech group. Can, can we have a food tech group? And he said, well, yeah, you can, but you'll have to do it. Oh, okay, right, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, over to you. Yeah, thanks a lot for that. So, yes, yeah, so I started up a food tech group. And the thing that was very apparent to me was that there was no definition of food tech. You know, what is it yeah. uh, in the UK, not in Silicon Valley? Um, and I feel quite strongly that, yeah, okay, London's the centre of fintech, as it should be, because because of the nature of, of, of the financial services in London. But you know what? The food in London is the best in the world, my personal opinion, and the most diverse. And therefore, we should be the centre of food tech. America shouldn't. I mean, the food in America, I'm terribly sorry, in general, is shocking. It's shocking. That is a, that is a it's real... It's a huge generalisation, I know, but it's completely. generally shocking. Because I've but, been to some very good places on the West Coast. Yeah, but I think if you go into London, I mean... It, uh, Breadth and the depth the same, of food the offering in London Coast. is great, is it? Okay, yeah, well, yeah, I'll it take is. your word for yeah. it. Anyway, I still think it should be London as the centre of food. Because also, some of the nicest food I've ever had is actually in Israel. There you go. So, I have to say... A lot of uh, good Israeli restaurants yes. now in London as yeah, well. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Dan's nodding a lot at that. <laughs> um, so, um, so what what the group decided to do was write a definition of food tech, because, because it isn't understood. Um, and then it became very obvious that it needed to be we need to give examples of all those different types of food tech. So for me, food tech is about minimising waste, actually, but using technology to do so. Um, but also there's the free from movement. You know, how do you ex- how do you take out certain ingredients? You know, it's quite difficult. Um, all the way from some of the delivery systems, you know, to the ordering systems, all sorts yeah. of stuff like that. So... I've written this book called Food Tech UK. It's out next month. Amazing. Thank you for that, Dan. <laughs> Just mentioning that. from all good bookstores. All right, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, but the whole point of the book is to map food tech out so we can get a definition of it. And also to show there's loads of investment going into it. I mean, loads of investment. Oh, definitely. Um, and, and especially in the growing systems, you know, that Jonathan's been talking about. Actually really, really using technology to solve 
some of our problems because we will not be able to continue feeding the planet in the way that we do at the moment. We just won't. You know, it is impossible. And nothing could be more important than food tech when, when you think about it. So I, the trend I think I'm seeing, which is quite interesting, is that food tech in London started off very close to the consumer. Mm-hmm. And you saw the Deliveroo's Uncover was a good example, Open Table, of course, and all these companies that are trying really to solve problems that are very, very close to consumers. And now uh, the techification, if that's a word, actually is moving backwards towards the produce yeah. and towards, uh, backwards in the value yeah. chain. And very much like Jonathan's. Yeah. Very much yeah. like Jonathan just said. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, th- I think that's generally a trend. And I remember when we did Uncover, we said that just to the, to the restaurant's point, oh, we surveyed thousands of people. And what we found is that everyone calls themselves a foodie, but no one can, uh, <laughs> ident- but under 10% can identify 10 good restaurants in London. By the end of our first year, we had, I think, 350 great restaurants in the city and we only yeah. pick the top 10%. Mm-hmm. So there really is a huge, huge amount of inventory there that you can play around with and create sub-marketplaces through. So, yeah, well. yeah. Well, we're seeing loads of technological advances, particularly at the more the growing end, you say the agri end, yeah. um, and just trying to improve yields and you know, all that sort of stuff. And, and I think one of the interesting things is, is Kent is now literally the champagne region of Europe, actually, because yeah. of the soil uh, and, and the weather changes. And actually sparkling wine in Kent is winning all sorts of prizes. And, and the French are really struggling because of the soils completely changed. I had no idea, um, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I mean, some of the big houses have actually taken land in Kent to start mm. growing vines ready for production, because the vines need to establish over a number of years before they uh, start. But there's a lot of technology goes into that again, yeah, um, about you know, yields, growing yeah. yields, uh, you know, management of the vines and how they're actually uh, brought forward. Well, things that Jonathan has been talking about. Yeah, it's, it's really trying yeah. to maximise And in that. fact, I'd like to get my own vineyard Would on my know? roof of my house. It would be rather pleasant. <laughs> yeah, is that possible, Jonathan? Yeah, do you think? We, we might have to look at it. the actual vine varieties and things like that, and there must could, be something. Could we not auto-pick the grapes and make the wine at the same time? Yeah, oh, no, 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 no. You've got to have the human involvement. You, you, you ask Tread any it. master of wine, it's got to have that hands-on. <laughs> it's mm. got to have that foot, foot flavour. Yes. <laughs> oh. Right, moving yeah. swiftly on. Thank you for that, Steve. So, um, Dan, uh, just, just um, I'm going to pivot. That's the, uh, that's the phrase, I think. It is. Um, tell us about touch notes. Um, uh, the, the actual, I mean, I've got a, a a stat here you've helped send over nine million postcards electronic postcards since you were launched in 2008 and you believe that's just the start so we just announced yesterday actually that i think this week we're going to hit our 10 million millionth postcard wow so it's um yes there's quite a lot of cards being sent but touch note is the most thoughtful way to keep in touch we like internally to call ourselves um the snapchat for the kodak generation we are the guys who, when you want to send something thoughtful to someone, if it's a canvas like the nice ones you have here in the studio, or if you want to send a nice greeting card, a personal one which with your photo on it, if you want to send a postcard from a holiday that even has your son or daughter's little stamp, then we are the product for you. And when was it developed? 2008? So, 2000, so uh, in line with the uh, pivot culture, in 2008, yeah. I think we started off only with a website and slowly went into the app as well. Now we have an iOS app or an Android app in the website. I happen to have it on my phone, actually. Do you? Yeah. We were yeah. having a good look at that before you yeah. arrived. Yeah, yeah, so, you. Got that. Yeah. so, yeah, it's quite, it's nice because it can be personalised. I think that's, a, that's probably the key area, isn't it? that you've developed so personalization is one of them uh, the other is the worldwide free worldwide shipping and that we have an array of products that you can use and 
essentially what we are trying to do is say there's a moment in life where you want to just send more than WhatsApp. And how do you make that happen? And I think that what's really exciting about this is that we talked a lot about how technology can empower parts of your, uh, your life when it comes to consumption of food. And I think this is true for so many other areas as well. Now, in the photo area, what happened is that 20 or 30 years ago, if you just take a picture, there'd be no meaning to it if you didn't develop it. Now the pendulum has swung to the other extreme. We take thousands of pictures a day, and or a year rather, and you never develop any of them. So they're kind of stuck in, in this growing inflationary kind of cloud environment. No one ever sees them again. So I have a five-year-old. I probably have 10,000 pictures of him, and I will never look at them again, only now there's a way to actually send them to someone. And if we are on a vacation or if um, Christmas is coming up, then you can create cards out of them, which then last a lifetime. I, I think we have 10 million, well, this week, uh, this, uh, week we're going to celebrate 10 million cards. That means 10 million fridges across the UK <laughs> yeah. that, yeah, that have true. a postcard on them. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and developing the business, how many people actually work in the business? We're about 30 now. 30. Yeah. And I know you've got something that's called a um, happiness guarantee. We do. And, and you're, you're very passionate about, you know, this is about spreading happiness and, you know, it's for the Kodak generation, which I quite like. Um, how do you make sure that your culture spreads across the business with, with the people, you know, that, that work for you? Um, because it's got to it's got to be end to end isn't it if you're going to send these postcards and that's your business you want to reflect that in the way that you work absolutely so that's something we spend a lot of time thinking about and um we we about six months ago had to have really really strong think about okay who are we and what do we stand for and we decided that thoughtfulness is the word that we want to encapsulate we want to un, we want to really identify with so then we took that and said okay how does that create a culture how do you so, create so a thoughtful consumer culture? facing your your brand is about thoughtfulness and then how do we internalize that absolutely yeah. because we want every developer every designer every product person every marketer to be to come into work and say this is the most thoughtful place to work and then that we hope will resonate in their work as well towards our consumers. So we revised our holiday policy. We call it the thoughtful touch note holiday policy now. Nice. And there's no caps, there's no minimums, there's no maximums. It's about saying, okay, what I want to take holiday. Does this make sense for my boss and for my work right now? Is it high season for us and actually I have tons of work? Or actually can I wait for two or three weeks and then take my holiday? You, you don't need any approvals for it. You just, you, 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 you act thoughtfully. And by doing so, you can take a, whatever holiday you want. Oh, my I want, God. I want to work oh, I'm not you. sure. <laughs> I'm I, not sure. I've worked for a few companies, and it was an unhappiness guarantee the moment you walk through the front door to yeah. be quite honest at yeah. work. So, no, I mean, that sounds great. No, I've got, I've got 20 people in my business. I'd be petrified of just let anybody just not get permission and just go and Lucy, our producer, sitting there nodding like anything at the back there. I'd, I'd be worried about that. Should I be worried? Is that just my perception? So, I don't need to be worried. So the research we did before with our other companies that have done this, um, they call it unlimited holiday policies and things mm. like that. All the research actually shows that people take less holiday, not more, when you uh, remove the caps. That was actually a concern for us because we did not want people to, we didn't want to um, say unlimited right, holidays. I'm off chaps exactly. July yeah. and be back in December, <laughs> something like that, yeah. We, we also didn't want people to feel that now they are being shamed to not take holiday yeah. or that there's some backlash to that. So actually we, what we decided to introduce is minimums that are obviously there are statutory minimums, the number of holidays you have to take and we will enforce those to make sure people do take adequate yeah, holiday. Yeah, everybody needs a rest. Precisely. Mm. And then also we are constantly trying to talk about how can you be thoughtful at work. So it comes, uh, the holiday policy 
is an example of it, but there are many other There's ways. How you interact with people so, at work. So, and things like but that. you don't pay people to, to be off on 10 Not weeks holiday. No, yeah, very, funny. <laughs> very funny. Very well, funny. The, the, the question would be, is 10 weeks holiday a thoughtful thing to do in, this, in the context of your company? With 30 right. people, ultimately, most of them are still sole contributors. They are yep. the owners of their domain. What I find is that people take the same amount or maybe a little bit more holiday. At least they've scheduled it since we've announced. What do you do about holiday pay? Do you say, well, your holiday pay is 25 days a year? No, no, we give them holiday pay for all of it. And then well, the point, I'd never turn up. Would and you? The, that says a lot about your work <laughs> ethic, I have to say. But well, that's what, the aspect what we of, actually have it? found exactly is that people are much more responsible about their work now. Yeah. Okay. So people that's would go away. We, we have um, one of our managers currently in Indonesia. He took his laptop with him, and he's answering emails not, not every single day. He's at, you know he's at, he's at holiday, and there's no expectation for him to do that. Right. So when he said, "Should I take my my laptop?" I said, "I'm not going to answer that question. I you know that's completely up to you. And if you want to have like time off completely and you can zone out, fine. And yeah. if you uh, but this is before." holiday before what? Christmas you thought it would but be what happens if you get do? somebody out, out of 30 people that, that you know you get a person who is just irresponsible they, they and get, a pain they get the unthoughtful badge of the month no, they don't. No, no, they don't. But how do you handle that? Yeah. So first of all, um, I think the question is a valid one, not only for when you have. Um, yeah, it could be any holiday policies, yeah. right? Mm. What happens when someone doesn't perform to the level that you expect them to mm-hmm. is a question that every manager asks himself once he passes two or three uh, direct reports, right? There is always someone that you, would need, that you either need to reprimand or you need to have a discussion with. And that, once you understand that that's actually the question that you need to ask whatever the policy is, then it's not about what the, where, where the threshold is. It's about what kind of culture you're building in your company. Yeah. Uh, Touchnote is by far the best place I have found so far in my career to work in. And this is from top down. Yeah. And this is because, for example, we are hundred percent transparent. If you think about this, it is um, quite a difficult thing to do. We are one hundred percent transparent with our commercial numbers with our employees. They can see every line of revenue or profit and everything else. When uh, my uh, my last uh, Android developer came in, he said it kind of freaked me out. It's mm. the first time I've seen all of the commercial numbers of the company. But it's one of the things that we do to make sure that there's no boundary to the level that they would want to commit and help the company, but also to um, promote this kind of thoughtful environment. But what happens if you were to make a fortune uh, and it all goes to you and all the staff are working and realise that, you know, you're, you're going to, I don't know, bag a couple of hundred grand and they're on whatever it is. What, 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 wouldn't they not... Take a longer holiday? Yeah, take a few Take a longer holiday, that's a good idea. I mean, I share our figures as well, but, but what I'm saying is, you know, um, but we're not a, at a point where we're making loads of money yet, but, you know, if we were, I'd be worried that my my staff might get upset with me. Well, first of all, I'm very happy that TouchNote is still growing 60 to 100% year over year. So we are we are go, getting to the point where scale is, is uh, a impressive thing, I think, for our company and our, and our employees. And some of them have said, I, last week I had a discussion with one of them. He said, I'm here because of the excitement. The The growth is like nothing I've ever seen. So Fantastic, it is really yeah. is something, uh, something positive in our culture. As far as then wanting a piece of the pie, well, first of all, it's, again, another question of culture. Do you give every single employee equity or do you mm. keep it all for yourself? Do you give them bonuses depending on the actual real performance? Or uh, I think um, Google call it unfair um, bonus policy. So there's no, there's no reason to be fair, about the, according to Google, to be fair about the bonus policy. <laughs> it's about how much do you contribute to the business and then you will get more for that. But that might be somebody's subjective view, not necessarily, because not everybody can be measured by, you know, figures, can they? Absolutely. So first of all, I think in, in the company our size, 
most people can be, um, yeah, I think most people can be measured by the impact they have on the business. Yeah. Everyone still has a very direct Because it's a nice size, isn't it? So exactly. I think yeah. when we get, to, you, you get to 200, 300 people, there's a, yeah, there's it's a question. It's virtually now. impossible to, to, to determine. But what the, the best example is um, our head of people. She is... Um, she doesn't directly impact revenue, but of course she does because the, the cadence of hiring and the quality of people she brings in directly impact yeah. the business and that's measurable like any other mm. one. Yeah. God, I could talk about that for ages, couldn't you? Mm. Mm. It's so difficult to get a business right in terms of culture. And But for me, if you don't get the culture right, you won't succeed because that's your external facing and you can't do it yourself. Exactly. You, know, you, you, you can't do everything yourself. So all of your staff have to exhibit that culture. Yeah. I'm really sorry, Steve. We haven't got any more time on no, that. No, I've loads of questions as well. I'm going to ask Dan Quick, later. one more. Quick, one more. Should, Very quick. Is it hard taking a tech company and turn it into a manufacturing company as well? Because effectively, that's what you've done. So uh, the challenge here is not taking a tech company and making it a manufacturing company. The, the, the challenge here is to be very relevant and current and uh, across seasonality, across life cycles, across use cases yep. with your users. Once that happens, manufacturing is something that people have figured out in the world. Okay. The question is, how do you take these pictures and not make it look ret too retro that, that sure. people deem it um, unfit for their current lives? Yeah. Right? We still live a very digital life. And what you want to do is have physical products that can talk to that, that digital life as well. So mm. it's taking a use case and making it relevant across the, the spectrum of a digital and, and keeping tabs and making sure that you're morphing and, and yeah, changing, changing with the market the time, as you go yeah, along. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, um, fascinating stuff. Um, you've been listening to the Tech Talk show. Uh, Jonathan Lodge, uh, was CEO of City Farm Systems. If you Google City Farm Systems, you'll find what they're up to. And uh, Dan Ziv of uh, TouchNote, and you can find out about TouchNote, touchnote.com. If you want to send a little bit of happiness and thoughtfulness, that's the place to go. Um, we're now syndicated dozens of radio stations across the UK and further afield in, across America, across the UK, Ooh, going into Europe now as well. Um, so you can listen to us there. Thank you to my fellow presenter, Steve. Enjoyed Cheers, that, so did you? Yeah, that was good. very interesting. Yeah. From from bags of salad to... Yeah, or have a salad. How not to have a holiday. Yeah. Um, if you want to recommend any future guests or someone you think is doing something groundbreaking in the tech sector, we'd love to uh, get in touch with you. Um, you can do that uh, via Twitter, at TalkShow. Tech, sorry, Tech Talk Show UK. Or if you want to listen to any of our hundreds of podcasts, go to techtalkshow.co.uk. Thanks again to Jonathan and Dan, and we look forward to seeing you next week. <laughs> <laughs>